scripture today, if you want to follow along in your bulletin or in your Bible, it's from John chapter 11. If you're following along in your Bible, we are going to skip a couple verses. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters went, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, <clears throat> so that, when, that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. I'm George O'Hyatt. I'm the associate pastor here. Pastor Howard and Kelly and the boys are uh, out for a couple of days, enjoying a little time off on the long weekend for them. Um... And I'm glad to bring you uh, the next in a series of scriptures and, and sermons about 
uh, Jesus or the, the Christ of Christianity is what we've been kind of calling it. And we've been uh, taking um, ideas that we see and, um, and, uh, and kind of ethical behavior or morals or, or the way we should live or something like that in Christianity and, uh, and really trying to bring it back to Jesus and say, okay, why does the one who founded us uh, direct us in these banners uh, and how does he uh, redeem us into those kind of people? Um, and today, uh, Jesus is going to be our shrink, um, which is a derogatory term, right, for uh, being a head shrinker, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a counselor or a therapist, uh, uh, what have you. And um, uh, I want us to uh, kind of open up that kind of conversation be- with that because um, there was a day in the not too distant past where psych- psychology, psychiatry, therapy, counseling, all that kind of stuff was shunned, wasn't it? It was uh, considered um, either a privilege of the bourgeoisie or the necessity of the mad, the crazy, right? That's what you did. That's what it was for. Um, uh, Dream theory and the like, and a lot of stuff's evolved in psychotherapy and psychiatry and all that stuff, but dream theory uh, were people that you did dream theory on. It was probably better fit that you didn't, like, sit them on a couch, but maybe you gave them a padded room or something like that, you know? Um, There was a... There was an idea that, uh, that, uh, that there was a stigma and embarrassment and a, and a shame that marked people who, um, who were not normal, who needed help. And um, things really aren't the same anymore. It's been an absolute revolution uh, in, in a social sense. There's been uh, a real kind of embracing of psychology, psychotherapy, and all that other stuff, and Christian counseling and what have you. Um, in a one real sense, the counselor has replaced the clergyman uh, uh, in, in our day and age. Uh, now, th- 33% of people still go to their clergy person, their rabbi or their priest or, or their pastor for, uh, for kind of psycho-spiritual help. Uh, but 34% now go to counselors as well. Um, and so, obviously, uh, with that happening, uh, master's programs in counseling and doctorates in counseling has grown significantly uh, over the last years. Christian counseling has become a genre, a subgenre of that. Um, and it, it's only growing more and more and more. And I want to say this to start this whole thing off. Christ Central Church believes in counseling. I mean, professional counseling. If... Uh, if you could just take a look at the church budget, you'd realize how much we do believe in it. Some $18,000 this year we've spent in supplementing people going to counseling. $18,000 a year. Um, and then that's not even the people who just go on their own and use no assistance or only minimal assistance from the church. That's a significant amount of, of, of value. If money decisions are value decisions uh, in some ways, that's putting significant value in that. And, and for good reason. We value this kind of work, this kind of uh, therapy, if you will. Skilled therapists have changed both of your pastors and all of your elders, have helped, be part, helped them walk down paths of healing in significant ways, every single one of us, either directly or indirectly. They have been good for us. And in our own community, some of you know, some of you won't, and I wish I could tell the stories in more detail, but I'm not allowed because of that whole confidentiality thing, and then it was also just not be appropriate in any way, shape, or form. But stories about breakthroughs from past abuse and subsequent abusiveness, folks finally being able to give give up their rights of bitterness, 
tears finally flowing over loss and death, marriages healed from the clutches of adultery or neglect, lives turned around from addiction and rage, people finally learning how to communicate again or for the first time where everything's not a fight, young men and women seeing hope for the first time, Stories of people being stabilized because of chemical imbalances that were in them and have plagued them and their families for generations. Tortured souls finally being able to receive forgiveness. And wounded hearts finally being able to name the horror done to them. All those things I have have names and faces to them in our midst. Great things have happened because of counseling in our midst. And great things happen because of counseling all around. And the professional therapist is a part of that. But we do one of two things with it. Still, we have, um, it's become so popular that we've, it's almost like a magic pill for counseling, for counselors. And so what you really need is a psychotherapist or a, a professional counselor or, or uh, a professional therapist to guide you because they have the magic hook that will under, help you know what you need to, 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 to fix everything in you. And all you have to do is tell you of your past and, uh, and, uh, and all that binds you will be freed. And so you hear comments like, everybody should go to counseling. Everybody. Which is a great marketing tool if you're a counselor. You should try that. You know, that's, a, that's smart. Uh, but, or uh, I heard one time, I don't trust anybody who hadn't been in counseling yet. Or you take the opposite side because this mystique over this thing that happens and you go, you go, um, ah, it's all hocus pocus. These people don't need, you know, to spend a hundred dollars an hour to do this. It's a privilege of the privileged class and it's a, it's a sec, it's an exercise in self-importance and narcissism. It's just navel gazing. You're just, you're just looking at yourself. What you need to do is like go run a mile, have a friend, you know? Do something else. My, Dave, my dad's famous line here is, I've never met one that didn't need one. Not funny? I thought it was funny. So how does this matter? How does this come back into Christianity? How does the counselor, what Jesus called the wonderful counselor, um, how does this connect back to things? Uh, what does Jesus have to do with counseling, professional or otherwise, about the art and science of caring for people? Now, it would be foolish... And, and just ridiculous to try to get a systematic theology of counseling from the Bible. Like you could just do it linearly and say, okay, here's exactly what's supposed to happen, and here's the technique, and here's two Bible verses and call me in the morning. It won't work like that. Neither the Bible nor human relationships will uh, submit to that lack of complication. Humans are too quirky. They have too many uh, 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 complexities. And the Bible doesn't does, refuses to kind of give us that kind of uh, approach to things. But here's something that is true. And it's radically true. All true... Well, God made everything. And therefore, all truth is God's truth. Any good that happens, happens by Him. Does that make sense? God made all things, for all truth is God's truth. And any good that happens, happens because of Him. 
I'm convinced that one of the reasons, and I did this when I was taking Psych 101 in college and, and reading the scriptures at the same time, and again when I was taking my intro to counseling classes and, and seminary and all this other stuff, I kept going, these theories, some of these theories are just like straight out the Bible verse. It just they got tested on dogs and other things like that so that you know, it was kind of confirmed elsewhere. But these are like you know, some pretty plain, ordinary kind of uh, things that, that, that the scripture's been talking about forever. And I'm convinced that part of... Um, the most important aspects of Jesus' ministry is that he was a wonderful counselor. That he was a wonderful counselor, a caring, loving, and wonderful counselor. And what I want to do is just kind of connect this kind of counseling, some counseling ideas back to Jesus and bring us forward in this. And there's three in this passage that is a crisis counseling situation, right? Or grief, bereavement, not, not grief and bereavement counseling. Maybe it's not Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but Jesus the Shrink starts to come in here into this place and says, okay, let me deal with this. And he does three things. He has a present, he, he has a ministry of presence, a ministry of guidance, and a ministry of healing. Let's look at this. It's kind of an odd thing that you have a healing story and a, um, a, a story about presence when Jesus isn't actually on the scene. Y'all notice that, right? Jesus isn't actually at the place where Lazarus dies. You get that when it says, uh, uh, if you'd been, uh, if you, um, let's see, they go back to Judea or uh, when Mary and Martha actually send the attendants to go get him. So he's not in the same place. He's not in Judea. He's, uh, he's, he's in a different place. But there's, it's almost like John, the writer of this, is giving you a, um, a juxtaposition between physical presence and emotional kind of uh, uh, intimacy presence. Because this is one of the most emotionally deep passages in all of Scripture with respect to Jesus' emotions. Look at, look at here. It's, a, it's really interesting, this juxtaposition between where he is and, what's, uh, uh, and where he is kind of emotionally. So the sister sent word to Jesus... Lord, the one you love is sick. There's only two or three people in all of Scripture that are called the one, you know, are ones that he loves in this kind of explicit mention of his affection for him, for them. Jesus, and then the, John just goes out in verse 5 right there. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Just, just as, you know, commentary. I'm going through the story. John says, break out. Jesus loved these guys a bunch, right? Or... Um, in 36, after uh, he, he does, uh, after he's weeping and stuff like that, it says that see how he loved him is what the people say. It's a situational irony where he's physically distant, but he's actually deeply emotionally present when he gets there, wholeheartedly present. And this is a—is this not a mark of a good counselor? Presence. This is a mark of a huge and important mark of a counselor, and this is really important. Um, through the whole thing, there's this great image. It's maybe my favorite place in all of Scripture where this kind of intimacy, this um, this this kind of uh, presence is alive, and that's a Jesus uh, Jesus interacting with the sinful woman. Y'all know this story? It's in Luke seven where um, she comes in, uh, the sinful woman comes in, and she breaks the alabaster bo- box, and she's um, drawn, she's uh, washing, she's crying, and and puts the box all over, and anoints his feet, and 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 that's like major social faux pas. We don't know this. It's way too intimate, way too close, all the thing. So then Jesus does some group therapy because everybody's talking, and so he starts doing the counseling mode to everybody, and he does this amazing thing. He said, well, the Pharisee, that's usually a bad guy when you're reading the New Testament. Uh, 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 The Pharisee says, um, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And this is my favorite part. Uh, The Pharisee said to himself, all that stuff, she is a sinner. 
And so he's saying to himself, and so she's, and now, and now this woman's at his feet, right? And he's, he's dealing with all these, dealing with this. He knows that all this other chaos is going on. He's got a group therapeutic act to do, right? You've got to do something about all this. He tells him a story about people being forgiven greatly and, and what have you. And he says, uh, he says, um, uh, he says to the Pharisee, um, uh, Simon, he says, it says this, the scripture says this in a very kind of, um, beautiful counsel moment. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me... Now this whole time he's talking to her face to face, but he's rebuking him. And he's giving her utter dignity by saying, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she was wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with, with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her, tell you, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. What? I mean, I couldn't do it because I couldn't, I didn't have the plates memorized, but could you imagine looking in this woman's eyes who has risked all shame and the dignity that must be to get the rebuke out there by facing her? It's an amazing passage and the scripture is very clear what's going on in, in that thing. It's this ministry of presence that Jesus has that's, that, that is, is really kind of shocking. And it's, it's, in, it's in scripture verse after scripture verse, encounter after encounter with Jesus where he does this kind of thing. He's, uh, uh, he, he's, he's just there and you can't out or out emote him or under emote him. You, you, you he's going to be there and he's going to deal with you on this. But his presence is just not about this affection, this love. It's about a level of empathy. And this is where, uh, the trivia question that everyone needs to know is, you know, what's the shortest book in the Bible? I mean, what's the shortest, uh, uh verse in the Bible? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. You, if you need to do some Bible memory, pick that your first one. You've already got one good day of Bible memory. Uh, uh, Jesus wept. The reason why this is so significant, well, there's tons of reasons why this is so significant. Jesus empathizing with this in this situation is huge. He's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of our, of our entire emotional life. He's the guy who put ear, uh, 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 tear ducts in our eyes. And he weeps at the death of Lazarus. And worse... He knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Right? Now, come on. If you know you're going to raise somebody from the dead, my emotional presence, out the window. I'm done. I'm walking up like John Wayne, you know, or George Jefferson, you know. I'm going to, I, I'm going to, I'm going to show off, show out. I'm going to have, I'm going to be like, oh, watch this. You know, I mean, I'm just going to really play it up. And, you know, the last thing I'm going to be is like, Oh man, I really hurt for the sake of the fall and the grief that's caused in this in this in this reality. The last the last thing I'm as present, I'm going to be like, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to I'm going to play it up. I'm going to you know uh, run into the end zone and cross my arms and tell, thank Jesus and all that other stuff beforehand, or thank God if I was Jesus. But that's why I'm not Jesus. One of the couple reasons. You wanted to be the hero to sweep in. He knows he could do the, this is a romantic comedy. It's going to be a happy ending. He's going to be the hero to sweep in at the end. You know he could do all this, and he doesn't because he's emotionally present. And I just want to say this as simply as I can put it, and this is so quirky and weird because we really try to do really sophisticated kind of uh, teachings of the Scripture and, and all that stuff. But um, I'm basically right now the equivalent 
of the guy that the John 3.16 sign at the back of the end zone when you kick a field go through. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's a motivation. His presence is motivated by his love for his people. And he loves his people. And that's why he's present. That's why he's present with the affection. And that's why he's present with the empathy. He loves y'all. Church, beloved, is what you're called. He loves you. And this is the most trite, simple, hackneyed uh, kindergarten thing you could ever come against with. It's the easiest and the most simple theological truth we ever learn. And it is the most difficult thing to lean into, you will ever lean into in your life. It is quirky and weird and demanding and frustrating and you don't believe it. You're like, yeah, I do. I believe he loves me. I'm like, no, 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 you don't. None of us do very well. None of us do at all. So much so that the great theologian Karl Barth of the last century um, was asked in this really academic setting, what's the most important theological truth in our day, the most important theological thing to do or to, to believe? And he says, with very ser- in a very serious uh, way, he says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That is of the most difficult things to believe because most of the times we are walking around like he doesn't love us and doesn't care for us. And it's hard. We're hard-headed about this. We keep thinking we're not children but orphans. We keep thinking we're not cared for but neglected. Let me ask you some questions. Feelings of being alone, full of self-concern, Anxious over relationships, money, health. Nobody cares. My life is just based on my success and what I can do and what looking good and being right. I'm performance oriented. I feel condemned every day. Guilty and unworthy before God and other people. Ultimate obligation is what I live for. Or resistance and rebellion to all things. Defensive, can't listen well. Bristles at the charge of of being self-righteous or or you need to be safe or secure all the time. Unwilling to fail. Unable to tolerate criticism. Ungrateful, bitter. You're a gossip. You need to criticize others to feel right about yourself. You're prayerless. It probably stems from us not believing that God loves us. All of it. All of it. I don't want to be too reductionistic, but I'm about to be reductionistic. (laughs) Most of our ills are because we don't believe that God through Christ has loved us well. We have not gotten used to such a thought. And it's it's understandable because it is hard to come. It's hard to come by and hard to believe. But God is called Emmanuel, God with us. And He cares for us. He loves us and empathizes with us. But all my counselors right now are kind of going, getting a little nervous because they're like, dude, there's so much more to counseling than just like being ushy-gushy, lovey-dovey in the middle of a counseling session. And actually, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. You're going to get fused with your client, and it's going to be all messed up, and you're going to end up having an affair, and, you know, the first person ever, you know, it's just going to be a mess. So you got to have some distance in this thing, too. You know, all my counselors are like, hey, boundaries, can I get some boundaries, please? And they're right. Because empathy, 
without uh, empathy and affection, without guidance, is basically uh, uh, co-misery. We'll just be sad together or be neurotic together or do whatever we're going to do together. And you'll just have a pal uh, in, your, in your darkness or in your, uh, in your neurosis or pathology or whatever it is. Uh, affection and empathy alone is more like a date than a good therapy session, right? So you need something else. And so Jesus actually shows a bit of guidance here that's pretty significant. If you look... Um, if you look here, he has that kind of hard edge of being a counselor that, uh, that, that really kind of bugs you when he guides. Because what he does is he navigates um, from the presenting problem to the deeper issue. And Jesus does this a lot. You know, Jesus is the kind of guy who you can ask a perfectly legitimate question of and he will totally not answer the question. Right? And the scriptures, I don't know if you ever read this in the New Testament, you're like following the question, you're like, this is totally good. And then he goes, Zoom. he does this one time about this guy asking an apologetic question. I'm sure he was deeply concerned about what happened, but the, the, um, that a tower fell and some people died. And someone comes up to Jesus and says, um, uh, the tower fell and people died. Can you explain this? Or, you know, tell me what, you know, who sinned or how this happened. And he goes, he said, hey, Jesus answers by saying, you should watch out and repent because uh, the tower might fall on you too. That's not shiny, happy Jesus. What's he doing? He's actually going past the presenting with you, I- issue, which is the apologetic problem, this kind of crisis of idea, and is digging into the person of need for control and fear, fear of, of death. Right? Great psychological move, right? Great counseling move. Well, Jesus does this all the time. He actually does it... Um, uh, here when he says, um, Lazarus is dead in verse 14 and then in 15. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you might believe. Thanks, Jesus. Lazarus is dead. He just goes out and said it earlier. He said he was sleeping. Now he just said he's dead and I'm glad for your sake so that you might believe. Okay. Belief and unbelief, as I said earlier, belief about God's love, is, the, is one of the fundamental issues within Christianity. It's uh, belief that God cares for you, belief that God can redeem you, all those kind of things. And it's really easy to, to miss the mark by uh, pursuing uh, some symptom and missing how, how he's trying to deal with belief or unbelief. And you have to really kind of dig in uh, and, and, and not get sidetracked by presenting problems. This happens... Uh, uh, this happened, Dr. Otzenberger uh, told me about one time where he was sure he was going to help this person who was delusional of some sort. I don't know the technical term. I don't know my DSM-4. I don't know what the terms are. But he thought he was dead. Okay, so this person he was working with thought he was dead. And John, being a young intern uh, or a young uh, PhD student, uh, said, I'm going to help him figure out that he's not dead. So, John rightly comes to him and takes his vital signs and shows him that he's breathing. And John goes, you see what this means? And he goes, yes, dead people breathe. (laughs) Evidence wasn't the problem. The delusion was the problem, right? All the evidence was going to be brought into the delusion, right? You've got to be able to, there's got to be a bigger issue going on. Death itself isn't even the problem in this passage. Even the right grief of the dignity that Jesus even wept over isn't the problem. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. 
And he's doing a group therapy session on everybody, including us, by us being the crowd watching in as he does this. Belief is our core problem. And it's easy to mess it all up, but it is. But Jesus doesn't just use the guidance of the navigating to the core problems. He does something else. He does the goodwill hunting move. You know, the, uh, the counseling deal in goodwill hunting. You know how this goes? Where they just sit in silence the entire time and just wait? No. Goodwill hunting. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. A little, little dialogical. It would be nice. Thank you. Uh, uh, so he says this, which is just utterly bizarre to me. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was stick, sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Okay, seriously? You, you stayed for two more days? Y'all know this uh, Seinfeld episode with the Juji Fruits? <laughs> Elaine is about to, she's trying to meet a date. She's meeting her date, which is some dude that just made the show a couple of times. And there's, and there, um, she's sitting in line at the concession stand for the movie. And uh, she gets the call and she's like next in line that her, her boyfriend has been put in, a, um, uh, it was in a car wreck. And she has this moment after she realizes it where she's feeling kind of this, oh, this is really bad. And then she looks at the Juji Fruits and she... She, she hangs up and it, she buys the juicy fruits first, waits, you know, another five minutes to get her juicy fruits and then goes to see him in the hospital. And the whole thing is this play up about, you bought juicy fruits first, you know, you, you, before you do this. That's my priority for you in this relationship. Obviously they break up. But that's what this kind of feels like. Two days? Two days? You know he's sick and you don't go? This is going to be odd for you when we talk about waiting upon the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't work on our timelines, y'all. He is okay with us not being okay. He is not, he, his crisis is not our crisis. Or our crisis isn't his crisis. And all our crises aren't crises anyway. He's not sitting up there going, oh, I wonder what I'm going to do now. I can't figure it out. Oh man, I got to do something. I'm Jesus. I got to figure this one out. I got to go read something. No. He lets it sit. And I am thankful to our Lord that sometimes Pastor Howard and I and the women shepherds and the elders cannot come amidst your crises. Because, A, it would kill us and we'd have a divorce and it would be a mess and it would be terrible because I'd be nonstop, 24-7, you know, going from crisis to crisis and Pastor Howard and all the elders would be the same. That's the first reason why, the non-holy reason. The second holy holy reason why is because we need to learn and sit in the patience of what our perceived crises are and wait upon the Lord. That's what they were doing, waiting upon the Lord. It's good for us. This is the state we're in, is waiting upon the Lord. Patience is a part of this. And then you realize that the healing part isn't the whole, you know, just getting better or just being met in your crisis is the only thing. It turns your vision towards uh, hope and longing of another thing. So he guides by having us wait. He guides by getting us to the deeper issue. And he guides by teaching us very directly. Jesus is also a cognitive therapist for you therapy people. He's actually going after your mind to help convince it. Paul actually talks about renewing your mind. There's some categories and some things in our head that are just lies, untruths, things we believe, 
things that are just off, and he's working those things out in our minds. And he's trying to speak the truth into and does speak the truth into our lives so that we might be adjusted by that truth. This is what that whole thing about um, the theological discussion between uh, Martha and Jesus. You, you remember this part where he starts talking about the resurrection and who's this and what's that and how's it going to be the resurrection and I know he'll be resurrected on the last day and, Je- and Jesus goes, well, I'm the resurrection and the life and, you know, I guess you're the son of God, Messiah, all that other stuff. It's like a theological detour in the middle of grief therapy, right? But the detour is actually a cognitive therapy to work on the mind and heart of Martha. And this is really important, y'all, because a lot of times we need to just be renewed in our mind about the truths of God. Theological categories need to shape us. God is sovereign. Your life is not out of control. You are kept. You are an image bearer of God himself. This means you have dignity. And they shouldn't have done that to you. And you should not do that to them. You see where the theological truth of image bearing and sovereignty? Or God is good. He's kind to you even when you don't feel it. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Oh my goodness. If we can believe those theological truths, I mean, we're invincible before the Lord, before our neighbors. Resurrection? I would bet that besides chemical and sometimes including chemical imbalances, one of the great things that uh, counselors, professional and otherwise, wish they could give doses of would be hope. If they had that bottleable, first I would make a killing, but um, they would give it as much as they possibly could. Hope. What else is this theological framework that Jesus is creating other than hope? Resurrection raised from the dead. New life. Living and not dying. That's amazing. Okay, last thing. You can uh, be empathetic and loving and, and as you want to. You can do all this kind of guidance. But loving and guidance without healing is really a big waste of time. Isn't it? <laughs> What Jesus proves most in this passage is what? That he can raise someone from the dead. That's literally what this passage is about. I've been hijacked a little bit to talk to you about counseling. But the power of all healing comes from Jesus' hand. Jesus is the resurrection. Not the technique of counselors. Not the technique of pastors. Not, not the ability to preach or teach or, be, or pray well. Jesus comes and does the healing. He has the power to come to our dead places and have them live. If you read the whole passage there, you read about the, uh, the, 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 the he's been in the, in, the, in the cave too long and so it starts to smell. And frankly, y'all, some of our stuff starts to smell after a while. So dead in sin we can be, or deadened in sin we can be. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he gets up. And he takes the stuff off, the clothes, the clothes and the, uh, the coverings off his head. And he lives. Not just the power to heal, but the power to, to, to bring life, to regenerate, reanimation. That was a bad set of movies, but uh, reanimation, living again. 
Now here's the crazy thing about it, because this does two things at one time, by him being calling himself the resurrection and raising somebody from the dead. That's really still not the point. You know that? It's all pointing to another thing, his own resurrection and his own resurrection of us. Y'all, Lazarus dies again. You know this, right? Make sense? In fact, in the next verse, in the next chapter, there's this like little conspiracy to kill Lazarus to get rid of the evidence that Jesus actually saved him, that actually rose him from the dead. They're like, they're going to kill, try to kill Jesus and Lazarus because um, uh, he was becoming a spectacle, you know, you know, this whole dead man walking thing. I uh, imagine that would be a skeptical, a spectacle uh, and skeptical. Uh, but uh, they, 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 Jesus is, I mean... Uh, Lazarus is put right back into a situation where he's suffering under uh, uh, of, 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 of his life there and needing help. He, he needs somebody to protect him. He needs to live out his life, and he's going to die again. What all this is pointing to is not the power of, the heal, of healing, but the person of healing. And this all just brings us back to that last point again, which is all healing, all true healing comes from Jesus. And I mean this I, I mean this from broken bones to broken hearts. I mean this uh, from even within secular counseling or in Christian counseling. All healing comes from uh, the healer. All real healing comes from him. All true healing, all full-bodied healing. Because that full-bodied healing, the kind of healing that he does, lasts until the end, until, our new he- our, until the new heavens and the new earth and our new bodies are made and like, like Lazarus, we've been raised again. But unlike Lazarus, we're raised again permanently. It's quirky to say heaven is the thing that should give you great hope. Because it's been used in such a way that, that has gotten people so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, you know. But I want to tell you, as simple as I said Jesus loves his people. Is that heaven's our only hope? <laughs> He's the resurrection. All of our angst, all of our neuroses, all of our pathologies, all of our brokenness, all of our sinful rage, all of our addictions, all of that is going to last in some way, shape, or form until Jesus raises us from the dead. I bring that to you as hope. Because it is sure as Lazarus being healed and walking again that one day he'll say to us, come out and we will live and we will be healed. And until then, we walk, healed some, counseled some, guided some, but we do walk in the power of his resurrection that is guaranteed for us, guaranteed to us, we call upon his name. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you. We do thank you that you love us, that you uh, you really are therapeutic, that you heal. We thank you that you've loved us deeply, intimately. We thank you that you guide us. And we thank you that you have bestowed on us the power of the resurrection and the fact of the future resurrection of our own bodies. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.